what would be the dream job? Is it a mm. film? Is it SNL? Is it a teacher back in Atlanta? <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I have your parents on the phone. <laughs> did she say? What did she say? Yeah. Tell her it's, it pays 60 grand a year. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making in this crazy biz and how they're almost, almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and today's guest has been on Jane the Virgin, I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, The Good Place, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the always hilarious, the ridiculously talented Sheila Carrasco. Hi. Oh, it's so great to be here, but I, I have a problem with it. I mean, I, I'm technically, I'm almost famous. I'm not quite at almost, almost famous. This is how, this is how I break it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, that makes a lot of sense now, actually. Yeah, I talked to the council, and you were almost famous, but you got bumped down. I don't know why. I didn't, they didn't let me vote. <laughs> when did you feel like, yep, acting that's what i want to be doing was it ever since you were a kid or did it not hit until later in life by like junior year of high school i was certain because you know you have to make decisions about college and stuff so i had to get kind of pick something i got out my high school yearbook and there was a quote from me with a picture that was like being in the rights of may play which is the spring play every year being in the rights of may play cemented the fact that i'd like to do acting for the rest of my life and I was like, oh yeah, that is around the time I kind of decided I wanted to do that. I briefly entertained because I did, I did a lot of theater when I was a kid and I did some commercials and some TV, mostly auditioning, but I did a couple of things on TV because I grew up in Chicago and at that time in the 90s, there was like quite a bit going on. So it was one of those things that unlike in LA, I feel like you can kind of casually do and also have mostly just be like not focused on it and not consumed by it. So I had done a lot of that stuff. And then in high school, I like briefly entertained the idea of becoming a doctor instead. And weirdly, my parents were like, no, you're going to apply to art schools. <laughs> we know how smart you are. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, now, even now, like my dad or my, my mom will say something like, there's the local drama school is hiring, Sheila. There's a middle school drama teacher position available in Atlanta. And my dad, why don't you come be a teacher? You are such a good teacher. And I'm like, first of all, I'm working, guys. I'm okay. Second of all, you pushed this on me. <laughs> you, if you didn't want this life, I said I wanted to be a doctor. Yeah. You gave them, like, literally, you'd think it'd be flipped for most parents. Like, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, be a doctor. Forget about that whole acting thing. Yeah. I love that. Was it like you think your parents were like, oh, go be an actor. But in the back of my mind, like, did you come back and teach? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they really, oh, God, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. For the listeners, Sheila's head just exploded. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, my mom was a teacher, so I think that was always, like, a great thing. And, like, I would come back for my summers uh, to teach kids when I was in college. And then all throughout high school, I was a summer counselor for kids. So I was always like working with kids as jobs. So I think maybe they, they saw that as almost, it's possible that they could have seen those as two very complimentary tracks for me. Yes. But so you did a lot of theater growing up and then it wasn't until kind of junior high school that it solidified. Um, who were your like childhood influences? Well, the movie musical Annie was huge for me. Mm -hmm. 
it really blew my mind because I actually started as a performer. I started singing. That was like my thing when I was a really little kid. And I grew up going to church because my dad was a minister and I would sing a lot. And then I saw the musical Annie and became obsessed with it. And then the local community theater was doing a production. So I begged my mom to audition and the rest is it. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the orphan chorus, had no lines, no name. There were about 50 of us in the chorus. We showed up for Hard Knock Life to show that the orphanage was just, I guess, full of children. Mm -hmm. uh, but basically it was all the kids that didn't get a part got to be in the orphan chorus. So <laughs> that was my big first role. But so there was that. And the main thing was that I always wanted to be Miss Hannigan because Carol Burnett in that, even though she was the villain, she was the one that I cared the most about. She was the funniest. Like her drunk scene for little girls where she's like drawing the bath. I, I still remember seeing that for the first time and just being like, I want to be her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to be drunk Miss Hannigan when yeah. I grow up. And I'm pretty close now. so. Um, so there's that. And then definitely, I would say like my earliest comedy influence, honestly, with, besides Carol Burnett would be like Dana Carvey on SNL. Mm -hmm. He was like his church lady and the sketch where like his, he has a head injury and the dog is like licking the side of his head and he keeps rolling it on the white couch, like stuff, weird stuff like that. That massive head wound, Harry. Yes. I thought he was just the funniest person. Like he could do anything. He could just look at the camera and like me and my siblings, we would just laugh so hard. And I was really young, but at the time I was like, he's incredible. So those were the earliest ones. And then of course, you know, more people came into the picture. After. Sure. Cause I know you, what was it like then when you got to meet Carol Burnett? Oh, it was just, it was just delightful. So for those listening, um, it was a brief meet, but I got the opportunity to be like an usher at a show that she was doing through Jono Wilson, I think. He was coordinating it because his friend was producing this event where Carol goes from city to city and it's an auditorium full of people and she puts on this show about her life and it's intertwined with her coming on stage and telling stories and then them showing videos and then coming back on stage and talking more. And so they were, she had come to LA and it was at one of the huge theaters. I forget which one, maybe the Pantages. And so we got to, we had to get there early and he was so sweet. Jono like arranged for me to be in like the pit area, like right in front of the stage because all the ushers had different sections. And so there were people up in the second mezzanine, the third mezzanine, really far up. That was their job. Oh, I know what it was. It wasn't ushering. We had flashlights and we were in charge of getting the people, like taking a microphone to somebody if they had a question. Cause Carol Burnett was obviously famous for doing Q and A's before her show. So part of the show was doing Q and A's throughout the show. So that's what we did. But I got the pit section. So I got to be like closest to her on stage. And I was just like shaking and she showed up for tech and she was so lovely. And the first thing she did was thank everyone so much for being there. And then I got to watch her show like right in front of her. And it was all, all, most of the stories I had already read in like her memoirs and stuff and I knew, but she was so genuine and man, did she, was her timing just amazing. Like she could spin a yarn, she could tell a joke. She was incredible and super genuine. Afterwards, there's so many people backstage all in line, like have a word with her. 
and she made sure to take a picture with all of us and thank us all again. And also she had given us all roses from this like bouquet that she had gotten. So I got to take on the rose from Carol Burnett. The last thing I'll say about her is that although I had like loved her growing up, I really like later when I was more seriously pursuing comedy and sketch and character work, I kind of like came back to her and was just watching more and more of her stuff because I just wanted to like be influenced by her, what she did. I remember watching an interview, a talk show interview with her, and she was so real and so genuine and not on. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't trying to be funny. She wasn't trying to impress anyone. She was just like being a kind person. And I really liked that about her. And that really stuck with me because I was like, oh, you can just show up. And when the lights go on and there's an audience, be funny. And otherwise, like you can just be a person because I think there's a lot of pressure nowadays, especially with like social media and stuff to always be this like crazy stand up comedian like every tweet is a joke and like all that stuff and it's like it was just nice to see what a great kind of experience to love this actress as a child before you even really know who she is or her body of work except for the moment in annie and then coming to her a little later in life again and realizing oh she is incredible like every every time she's kind of come back into your life and eventually in person it got to solidify that you picked a good hero. You picked a good person to kind of be like right. watching and emulating because maybe luck or kismet or whatever it is, you you looked at somebody and were like, there's something about that person. Yeah. And I think that is a truly good one-to-one comparison for the two of you. Like, I feel like you are someone of that ilk oh. who can make an audience laugh, you know, entertain, but at the same time, like not afraid to just like be genuine. Now, in your family, do you feel like, were you the funny one, so to speak? Or were you the ham? Or was everybody? Good question. Um, you know, everybody in my family is a ham. I would say they're all funny in different ways. I would say, though, my sister Sarah was always the funny one because she would, for the, she's this, the third oldest. I'm the, I'm the youngest. I'm the fourth. And she um, would be quiet a lot of the time. And then she'd say something that just like broke everyone, you know, and she, I've stolen a lot of stuff from, I still think she's the funniest in the family, but weirdly enough, like she probably is the most shy when she first meets people. Yeah. I find that there's always those people who are like the assassins. They're just in the distance waiting and then they just get that perfect joke, that perfect shot. And you're just like, God. Everyone here is just talking loud, trying to be funny, and you just come right in with just precision. Yes, I've tried to learn from that, like with improv and stuff, because I'm like, oh my God, just shut the fuck up, Sheila. Like, stop try- letting your mind spin, just listen, and then wait for some opportunity. So you had an interest in acting, and when did it, the focus kind of move, or was it always in comedy? Because I'm sure like growing up, it's like you probably were doing like dramatic plays or even like you said, musicals and stuff. Mm-hmm. When were you kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm really feeling comedy. It has gone, it has been all over the place. I would actually say, so it started with singing and like getting into musical theater. I would say performing though was always comedy at a young age and like me and my most authentic self, like performing where it's truly like for me or for an audience that I really like no like family or whatever it's been like more sketch character kind of stuff but 
we didn't really have those options growing up. Like there wasn't a Groundlings or a, I mean, there was Second City, I guess, but that was such a North Side thing. And I didn't really find out about that till I was in high school. It really was like, if you want to perform, you should audition for, you know, musical theater. Or when I got to high school, it was very serious, legit theater. There was no musicals being done or anything. So when I got to high school, I made that switch and became like really into like straight theater and like Shakespeare. I felt like, okay, I'm supposed to like this. <laughs> and then I went to college and then I was very like serious experimental theater, theater of the absurd, did all of that. Tried doing Shakespeare. I'm terrible at Shakespeare. And then after college, I still like, I, I didn't really, I think I was too scared to try the improv scene in New York. And um, SNL was always a dream, but I just didn't think I would, like, I just didn't see a path there. And then I went to grad school and met Josh at a lot more serious theater. And we ended up, I ended up doing a comedy in my last show. Everyone in my class did one, did a comedy. It's called, it was um, Shel Silverstein plays and Harold Pinter. It was like a combination of things. It was mostly characters. And that's where like I really shined for like the first time in grad school. And our artistic director in my final evaluation was like, you're kind of like a Tracy Ullman type. Like, you should do more comedy. And I was like, great. Two and a half years. And I find this out now. Cool. <laughs> Better to find it out then than to never find it out. That's true. And like, to his credit, I wasn't really giving him much opportunity to, to see that potential before. So, and then I moved to LA, was randomly taking an acting class at Steppenwolf West because I, I just love signing up for more and more acting classes and paying money <laughs> to learn it. And um, I was doing a glass menagerie scene with Kevin Bernson, who's a very well-known, respected uh, former Sunday Company alumni and teacher at the Groundlings. And we were doing the gentleman caller scene and I was playing Laura. We ended up doing ours in front of the class and it was really funny and it shouldn't have been funny. And that was really cool because I didn't really understand like so much why people were laughing. And Kevin was like, you should really do Groundlings. It's like really great for actors. So I found Groundlings and I was like, oh, this is such a great blend of like so many great skills. And you really, it was really at its core for me, really good acting training. And then it got to the writing, but it was kind of a journey to really, I felt like I was constantly like narrowing the microscope as I went until I found that I wanted to do character comedy. To find your way to comedy in such a like, like you said, like a microscope, fine-tuning way is really fascinating to get to the heart of something that I feel like a lot of people would be like, mm, comedy, like, you know, no thanks. Like, I'm here to do, like, Shakespeare or anything else. I do think it was a systematic approach to get there. And I, I don't regret it at all, but I think about it all the time if I had just taken a risk sooner, like after college when, you know, I was like, oh, auditioning for SNL would be so awesome. Like if I had just gone a little further to really ask questions like, well, how do I do that? How could I do that one day? You know what I mean? Like, what, how do I get into that kind of work even, let alone the audition? Like, how do I just do characters? And I, I kind of feel like I took a safe route because I, I was like, I'll take like the latter, the validation seeking route to get there where I think about all the time, like, what if I had just fucking like moved to LA and just started taking Groundlings classes at 23 like where would I be I mean that's always a tough tough game to play though because you could have been homeless under a bridge yeah 
we adjust your pass, you might have done improv and sketch earlier, but thought, should I have gone to grad school? Should I have done all that? Right. Yeah, that's true. And I wouldn't have met Josh, so. Well, that's, an, that's another reason you probably question it every day. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, for the listeners, Josh is her husband, and uh, he is quite the catch. <laughs> He's such a catch. And honestly, like, I don't think I would still be acting if, if I wasn't with him. Mm. I really think I, I would have uh, given up. Really? It's, that's how it's, it, he's truly like a truly supportive partner and like really genuinely cheers for me and roots for me and, and everything, especially, you know, cause he's an actor too. Um, he didn't want to continue taking classes at Groundlings. It wasn't for him. So maybe that makes it easy cause we weren't really doing, trying to do the same thing. But at the same time, like it's rare to find that in an artistic, you know, actor relationship. So. Yeah. I'm very grateful. It's nice because he definitely is someone who is a champion of you and supportive of you, but you are also to him. And I know like when two actors get together, that can always be dicey where both want the other one to be successful, but maybe not too successful. You know, it's like, we're like, I want to be even, but I think you both are like, you do you, I'll do me. And we're here 100%. Yes. 100%. I mean, I think we're also like, we're pretty independent in a nice way. You know, like we love spending time together, but you know, like I can make my own things and do my own things and like make a comedy video and there's not like a... Is there a part for me? Yeah, exactly. And he can do his thing. It's Mm -hmm. nice. When you found yourself uh, going to the Groundlings and kind of getting through the training of improv and writing and doing sketch, is there a character either from there through your career that you created that you're kind of like, that you hold dear, that you're like, this is my comedy in a nutshell. I tend to go more towards like joyful people that just want to help, you know, or are like concerned or whatever, because uh, I don't know, I think there's a lot of heart in that. And then it can be easily let down, which is always funny. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I had this character I did at the Groundlings that, that did really well and it always worked. And when I took it other places, it just always worked. So it felt like something I was like, it was like a calling card and it was this, it was a lovable sketch where like I'm auditioning for a cheerleading squad, but I was recently kicked off the girls basketball team because she's too aggressive. And so she tries to do the space jam dance and can't quite do the moves right. And then gets kicked off of the dance team, even though she didn't even get on it. And so she freaks out and tries to break the stage with her, with her bare hands. I feel like that to me is definitely my comedy because she still wants something very positively, but she's just, she's just too passionate about it. (laughs) So I feel like that's something that I kind of like to do in general with my comedy. And also just because it really, I did find that sketch from like my childhood growing up, we were huge basketball fans. We played basketball. I was on the basketball team and like, it was like diehard Bulls fans. Michael Jordan was everything. He was God. And so in this sketch, she's obsessed with Michael Jordan. So it felt very close to Mm -hmm. my heart. I love it. Yeah, it's very passionate, genuine people who care deeply, feel deeply. And especially as, you know, I was there and I got to see the Lovables sketch, which is so much fun and so full of energy. And it is just this person who just wants something so bad. They just want to be part of this team. They just want to be close yeah. to this team. And it's, it's so true to life where sometimes it's like, it's the people that want something almost too much, like that just can't 
take a breath, let it come and ha- let it happen. You just watch it like all unfold and like break apart for this person. But <laughs> I think it's something so true of pulling from growing up in childhood, like easier to tap into your love of the Chicago Bulls because it's genuine. Yeah. Like when I would say those quotes in the sketch, I would really, I would really genuinely feel it. Yeah. And I would feel chills saying his words. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. They literally have these, this quote uh, framed in their office. Yes, that's true. <laughs> some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. Yeah. Michael Jordan. Yeah. So when they do the documentary on you, <laughs> the, that sketch will be the last dance. <laughs> the last stance? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Now, as you're pursuing this, have you... I'm so bad with starting these questions. I'm so sorry. This is, this is like when I do my edits of these... Oh of these podcasts, I find like most of it is me just cutting out what I'm saying. I'm just like, just shut up, just ask a question. Um, no, that's, that's like part of talk shows and everything. It's when like Jimmy Fallon adjusts his seat, his seated posture. It's like, now, um, so tell me about. Yeah. But see, mine are like, I, I'm feeling, I thought, oh, never mind. Um, I, I'm always curious because this is something like, We've known each other for a while and we're both pursuing similar paths, but I never ask my friends or get to the heart of it. Like, do you have desires? Like, is it part of, I guess, a goal or like a thought to be rich and famous? Yeah, sure. I mean, the second question is then, do you think you'll get there? (laughs) But totally. Like, I mean, famous is, depends how you define that. Mm-hmm. for yourself rich is obviously a sliding scale depending on what you consider rich i would like to be able to own a house one day which in la is kind of rich mm-hmm. i will by no means be disappointed with my life if i don't get certain things gotcha. but i would love to be comfortable and be able to go on vacations gotcha now as being rich and famous would you say that as part of your definition of success or how would you define success? I would define success as um, being able to say no to work. Mm. (laughs) Like to be comfortable enough that you can be offered something that pays a good amount and you're like, "Uh, no, that doesn't really interest me. So for you, success kind of comes down to autonomy and control. Being in a place where especially as actors, we are at the whim of auditions and fingers crossed and hope we get stuff. Mm-hmm. But then to be in a place where it's like sought after, oh, I can slow down now. I can really take a look at everything and be like, I'll do that. I won't do that. Right. Exactly. Because then you're only ever doing something that you're interested in creatively. Like that to me is the dream. And with that creativity, what would be the dream job? Is it a mm. film? Is it SNL? Is it a teacher back in Atlanta? <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Sorry, yeah. I have your parents on the phone. <laughs> did she say? What did she say? Yeah. Tell her it, it pays 60 grand a year. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think definitely being on a show would be the coolest because then it's like there's no end in sight. Being on a comedy show with like other badass comedians and an ensemble comedy is my dream. Like The Office. Yeah, a show like that, where you're truly playing a part that like no one else could play. It's like half written for you and half like you brought something to it, you know, mm-hmm. where you just like you feel like all your choices are right and you don't have to think too hard and 
and to show up every day and like get to know people in the crew. I love, I love being on set. I love the community. Um, and also they have hiatuses. <laughs> so you get to go on those vacations or do a movie. With all the commercial work and shows you've been on, are there points in your career where you pinned them and felt like I've made it, I'm doing it. Like these are successes or are you someone who it's, it's never a success. It's always, there's always something to strive for. Well, there's like different levels. Luckily when I turned like 31, I started booking commercials and I got to quit like my last real job that I've had because I've been able to do commercial work since then pretty consistently. And when I was able to do that and Josh and I moved into a nicer place and I bought like furniture for our place, I was like, I've made it. <laughs> like I've cracked the code, I can book, you know, this isn't impossible. So that was a big moment. I guess last year I had one of those moments where I was like, you know what, theatrically and TV and whatever, if things are still a roller coaster, like I'm gonna be okay financially. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one level of making it. And then like, otherwise, like theatrically in terms of like doing the comedy I want to do, that's been really up and down. And I don't feel like I've really found a place yet where I'm like, whew, I've made it. Because I do think I'm like well-respected in the community in LA, the comedy community. People know me. There's, I'm doing a lot of random things all the time. I'm always creating stuff with different groups of people and... And that makes me very happy. Um, but in terms of getting paid for stuff, I don't think I'm there yet. I think you're doing the right thing of constantly writing and creating and putting things out there. That's good to hear. It's, uh, I think a lot of people are. And in certain ways, I feel like that's just what we do, right? Especially in comedy, you have to always be making it to call yourself a comedian. You mm -hmm. know, at a certain point, I'm like, that's, that's all we have. And, and if I was just doing this and like getting paid for it, like that would make me happy and I would be successful. With comedy improv and sketch, I'm curious, did you ever dabble or did you ever think about stand up? I have thought about it. I've done like five minute character sets before, which is probably like what I would, I would try to figure out how to like Steve Martin my way on stage, like as a character or whatever. But like, to be honest, I felt like I try, I've tried so many different kinds of acting to find sketch comedy that at my age and at this point, I was like, is it just like, is it just not a good look if I suddenly start trying to do stand up? Like, is it sad? Like, will, I, will people be like, oh, honey, like just stick to acting, you know? And also like, I've never felt the pull strong enough to really want to do it. Yeah, and you seem naturally more interested in ensembles and scene partners and working with people and collaborating where stand-up can be a very solo, solo yeah. lonely practice yes and i just don't like staying up that late <laughs> the, cult the culture would just be killer on me yeah you'd be at an open mic being like can we start earlier <laughs> well sheila announced the time in the show <laughs> yes <laughs> When I'm going to invite uh, the special guest, he's the famed insult comic, Raz Clifford. <laughs> he really likes coming out and knocking these guests down a peg. Great, because talking about like my, my almost almost famous career hasn't done that. Yeah, but he, he needs to make sure you know you're almost almost famous. 
<laughs> he doesn't want any of these guests to get too big for their britches. That's smart. That mm-hmm. really is. He's a humanitarian. Yeah, and also, I do, I do thrive. I do thrive on this kind of shit in a weird way. Okay, so let's get Raz out here. Okay, come on, Raz. Okay, hello, folks. All right, here we go. Sheila Carrasco. Okay, finally some real talent. <laughs> no, not you, Sheila. Can you get your husband, Josh, on? He's way more talented than you. Ugh, fine. I guess I'll just keep chatting with this sack of shit. <laughs> so, Sheila, you're still pursuing acting despite the cease and desist letter from sag That's brave. Sheila is known for being so-so at everything. <laughs> it's remarkable how unremarkable she is. Oh, God. Really, really check her out. And the thought in your head will be a resounding meh. Sheila truly is a triple threat in this biz. Because she will threaten you three times until you give her work. <laughs> And as always, Sheila, your best work is behind you. Yes! And that's how you give them the old razzle-dazzle. Yes! Boom, sweetheart. That's my favorite, Raz. Every single time. Thanks, Raz. See you later, Raz. Thank you. Wow. He's amazing. He's great. If not a little uh, cliche and redundant, (laughs) but yeah, we love the guy. (laughs) Oh, I got razzed. You're, you're someone who gets scared easy, right? I do. I do. Do you like being scared? Are no. you kind of like, I love haunted houses. I, I like that. horror movies. Are you like, screw that. I hate horror movies. I hate haunted houses. I hate Halloween-y, like spooky, like fake blood. and like. It is such a weird split because I feel like there's people who love getting scared. They love scaring people. They love that. And they also love doing comedy. So I think there's people that like reactions. Mm. They like getting something whether it's a scream or a laugh and i think there's people who are like no i want laughs i want joy and you come much more from a a school of joy of like i don't want someone to be scared unless it stops immediately and they start laughing because the scare is a funny scare like yeah yeah 100 percent. i just i have an active imagination like i don't watch a lot of scary movies but when i do I can't stop thinking about them. That's partly why I can't watch them. I, I can suffer the scare in the moment. It's the after. And like, I think about it at night. I think about it for years. I saw the director's cut of The Hills Have Eyes mm. like long time ago. And I still think about it every time like we drive through a desert. I'm like, make sure that there's no stuff in the road. I don't want to break down. You're looking at the hills, seeing if they blink. You're like... <laughs> It looked at me. <laughs> huh. I guess they do have eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so dumb. I enjoy horror movies. I enjoy getting scared, but I don't like jump scares for the cheapness of them. You want it to be warranted? Yeah. Scare me legit. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, well, when you think about it, like a jump scare, your body will react with a faster heartbeat. It'll, it'll get adrenaline because you were quickly scared. Uh-huh. But to me, but then I go like, oh man, like anyone can jump out and yell boo. Anyone can hide and like do something like, yeah. take me on a journey where all of a sudden I, I'm sitting there going, story. I am terrified. I want story. Yeah. I don't mind an occasional jump scare and something, but if I, if I'm going to watch a horror movie, 
I'll get very tired if the whole thing is clearly jump scares mm -hmm. and they're just keep trying to ramp you up. Mm -hmm. I prefer when I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not even sure what's going on, but I'm, it's unsettling. I don't, I don't like what's happening. I feel that. I feel that way about like shock, shock, jock. What do you call it? Shock humor? Shock comedy? Yeah. Where it's shock like, comedy, shock humor. Where it's like, like ooh, I'm going to flash you my boobs because I'm crazy. Or like. Yeah. Which is always hilarious. Yeah. That's always. Whenever a girl flashes boobs, I start laughing. I'm like, that's funny. <laughs> no, but I know. So much talent. But like, yeah. like Or people mooning someone or fart humor in a way. Even though fart humor can be some of the funniest stuff. Well, I actually really like that. <laughs> but it's got to be smart fart humor. It does. <laughs> or it has to be. You know what it is like? <laughs> take the snark out of it. You know what I mean? Like, give me like fart humor and dick jokes, but like, don't try to be all like, like you're being dirty and salacious and like, mm -hmm. be genuine with it. Yeah. How, find the heart and the fart. Yeah. Find the heart and the fart. And that's going to be the title of my podcast interview. Yeah. yeah. The title of your memoirs. Mm -hmm. Sheila Carrasco. She found... The heart and the fart. Or I guess like you as a comedian, like you should be risking something too, you know, like, or be playing a character or something that's an idiot and makes you look dumb. Yes. The vulnerability. Yeah. And playing something genuine where you happen to shit yourself. <laughs> Find the heart in the shart. There you go. <laughs> oh no, that's a way worse title. <laughs> This is a question I've been asking everyone because it's one I always think about. When you get asked to be a guest on a late night talk show, what is your story you want to tell? Well, while I was in grad school, we spent a semester in Russia and my sister was stationed in Germany. She's in the Air Force. And uh, I was trying to get from Switzerland, from Zurich, to, where, to her Air Force base and I had to take a series of trains. And it was very, very stressful. I'm going to set you up like it is a late night talk show. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, we're here with the wonderful Sheila Carrasco, and you're looking great, and the show and the movie are incredible. Please check them out. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you had some interesting travels through Europe. You were studying in Russia, but you were in Zurich, and you were trying to get to Germany to visit your sister. Fill us in. Uh, I was in Russia for th three months, and I was trying to visit my sister who was at an Air Force base in Germany and I had a stopover in Zurich. So I was taking a series of trains to get there. And I had a lot of stuff with me because I'd been living for a while in Russia and it was a very stressful commute and there were lots of ups and downs. I left my laptop on one train car as I moved to another because I had just been told that the train was gonna split in two. And then at the next stop, I had to run into the other train car and get my laptop bag and that suitcase before the train split in two, it was very stressful. I was very frazzled. Wait, a train but, split in two? Like, it just separated. Yes. There wasn't a Godzilla that was just ripping trains. No, out. no, it was like this point at which the train then, after, one, after this next stop, is going to split in two. And one is going to go one direction, and the back half is going to go a different direction. And when I bought my ticket in Zurich, nobody told me that. I mean, I clearly had no idea what I was doing at the time. They could have helped me out. But that's classic people in Zurich. They love those gags. Oh, such snobs. But the German people are very polite and very helpful. Yeah, no one was helping me with my bags, and which is why I missed my first train to begin with. You know, New York, they definitely would have helped me out. <laughs> anyway, I digress. 
Let me try to get this story right because there's millions of people watching at home and I don't want to fuck Actually, up. there's billions watching. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Well, Mr. Daniel, um, uh, let me continue this. <laughs> You're, it's, it's a delight to have you on. Oh, great. Always wonderful to be here. Thanks for the free wine. That's not free. <laughs> great. Well, I have no money. There's no more commercial work. Um, okay, so anyway. I'm on, I think, my final train in Germany, at least for a while. I go to my train car where my seat is. I find my seat, and then I'm like, oh, I need to pee. I haven't peed yet. It's been hours, hours. So I go into the bathroom in the train, and everything is very futuristic. The door opens automatically. I walk in. It shuts behind me. It's like a, one of those barn doors, like pocket doors. I press the button that says red, which I think means lock. And then I go all the way across the room because it's a very big train car bathroom. And I sit down on the toilet. I pee and I pee and I pee. And I've got the TP in my hand. And just as I'm wiping, the bar door of the bathroom opens. And two German police officers are standing right there mid-walking by. They stop. They look in. The door's open. I'm frozen with toilet paper to my crotch. And just looking at them, thinking, well, the door closed. I can't reach it. It's too far away. I, my hands are dirty. I obviously shouldn't go touch it. And then they, like, kind of move on. And then it closes. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. Then I'm like, whatever. I'm safe. I'm alive. Can't complain. I wash my hands, obviously. Go back to my seat. Then I realized why they were on the train. They were doing a random like patrol of the train, you know, because like they're even at that time were like super intense about like people sneaking on board and sneaking into Germany that weren't supposed to be there that didn't have the right paperwork or whatever. So anyway, I'm in my seat and I look up and I see them at the front and they're like looking through all the luggage and I see them poking at my bags. And I'm like, oh my God, because they probably had like US citizen on it or something. And they're coming down the line and it's like that scene in Indiana Jones and they're asking people like, you know, for their papers or papers and they come up to me. And the one tough guy who would like give me a stern look when I was peeing myself, papers, and I give him my passport. And then he starts being like, what are you doing in Germany? Why are you visiting your sister? Why is she there? And I'm like, she's in the Air Force. She's supposed to be here. Why she in the Air Force? I, I don't know. And why are you, why are you coming from Russia? I was studying there. What were you studying? Theater? You know, it's like really intense. And then he gives me back my passport and he walks on and then his dorky assistant stops and goes, next time, locks the door. <laughs> I love that none of them were like, was, was sorry that, you know, the door opened. You know, like none of, they didn't apologize. It was on you. Like, I'm also surprised that the serious stuff one was like, did you wash your hands? <laughs> It's almost like a weird germ. It's the idea of a German comedy routine. Yeah. You walk past someone, you look at them pee, then you interrogate them, and the last person goes, Lock the door. Yeah, and they were. Their personalities, he was so, it was so like bad cop and then like good nerdy cop. He was like trying to be nice. And you know, I have other stories. That one actually just came to me in this moment. That's great. That's the story. <laughs> you can save the real ones for actual talk shows. I'm, I'm, you know, Colbert Light. I'm Diet Conan over here. So don't, don't waste them on me. Well, Sheila, it's always a freaking pleasure to chat with you. Hey. And thanks for being on my podcast. Do you have anything currently that you're working on that you want people to keep their eyes peeled for? 
Well, I mean, I'm doing some different Zoom comedy things with different sketch comedy groups, big parties about to release some fun stuff. I'm doing this like fake uh, Howard Stern style radio show with some friends called The Zoom Room. And other than that, I'm just writing a bunch at home, trying to use this time to, I don't know, make something I really want to make. Fantastic. Well, thank you for being on. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been Almost Almost Famous.